Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, you're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast this Monday. Owen is here. Owen is here. <laughs> Owen, we're from Ken, are here. <laughs> Good to see you, Mr. Owen. Uh, hey, Mr. Owen. Indeed. Uh, Owen goes on to... Owen continues. <laughs> so, uh, despite that bad start... Uh, I think, I, I think I'm going to make an excuse already for my first misstep. Yeah. I just had such a strange dream last night. I haven't, I haven't shaken myself free of it yet. Mm. Go on. No, it, was, uh, it was bizarre. It was 90 minutes long, this dream, and it just... It's so vivid, all the details. I mean, I, I dreamt that a candidate running for president of the United States in the middle of a live debate with his rival threatened to throw her in jail if elected. Mm. As a, I, the, the, another moment of this dream, he took his, uh, his um, you know, vice president, would-be vice president, threw him under the biggest bus he could find. <laughs> but then I realized that this is definitely a dream because I woke up and I checked the Twitter account of said vice president to be. Yeah. And uh, Mike Pence said, oh, great. Uh, congrats to my running mate at real Donald Trump. What a big debate win. Proud to stand with you. Make America great again. Live from uh, underneath the bus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, pretty incredible. So what did you make of all of this? They will literally say anything. It's just words. I think that's what he said last night. This was locker room talk. <sighs> this was locker room talk. I mean, the, the paragraph that from which that clip comes is... Is worth just reading. I'm going to just read it. Uh, this was locker room talk. I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family, to the American people. Certainly, I'm not proud of it. But this is locker room talk. When you have a world where you have ISIS chopping off heads, where you have frankly drowning people in steel cages, wars and horrible, horrible fights all over, so many bad things happening, we haven't seen anything like this. The carnage all over the world. Can you imagine the people that are frankly doing so well against us with ISIS? And they look at our country and see what's going on. Yes, I'm very embarrassed by it. I hate it. But it's locker room talk, and it's one of those things. I will knock the hell out of ISIS. <laughs> We're going to defeat ISIS. It was one thing to, 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 go, to go from there to ISIS, but then to bring it back and then go back to ISIS. ISIS. That was, that, there was a certain uh, clarity lacking in that answer, I would say. Yeah, and you know, this was 
uh, okay, the, the fact of it is that, that it was much better by Donald Trump uh, than the first debate was, which was a complete disaster for him. It was it it, it started off with him being asked about this this tape that had come out. Um, asked directly by Andrew Cooper, you bragged about sexual assault. Do you understand that? And that was what prompted the answer that we've just heard. And, and I mean, it was it was as bad as anything really that we've seen so far in terms of his talking absolute gibberish in the face of you know a catastrophic situation. Uh, and kind of once he steeled himself, then to sort of attack straight back and, and to, um, you know, talk about uh, Bill Clinton sexually assaulting people and say, well, you know, and you've, you've enabled him and bullied, bullied his victims. It was kind of once he'd crossed that Rubicon, it was like he kind of felt, suddenly felt more at home. Mm. He was like, oh, here I am flinging, flinging shit. And it was like he, he began to feel as though he was in his element. And Hillary Clinton... Who, you know, I wondered about this because it was clear what he was going to do. Oh, yeah. He'd said it before, you know, we're going to get into this in the debate when he put out that apology uh, tape. Uh, and, and then he'd had this press conference before the debate with four of the women who have accused Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. Uh, it was clear that he was going to do it. But you wondered, when was he going to bring it up? In fact, they brought it up. The moderators brought it up in the first question. Uh, and, and what it would be like for Hillary Clinton. It's not as though Hillary Clinton hasn't spent quite a lot of her life thinking about these things. You know, she would probably be quite prepared. She'd probably have a few, you know... Um, Stock phrases or... Yeah, not, not like one-liners, but it's definitely something that she's thought about that, that maybe you're attacking her on strong ground here, you know? Um, you know, the world breaks everyone and... People are stronger at the broken places. Well, maybe this is attacking her, one of her strong points. But she, I think, was so kind of so angry at what was happening. I mean, which is understandable that I think the emotions kind of prevented her from really from striking back with with kind of great clarity. I mean, there was a moment when she. You know, he brought up his emails thing, you know, your emails, 33,000. And he, he inflated it to 39,000 at one point. And you could see her going, oh, I can't say it was just 33,000. Um, you know, but 39,000. Yeah, it's, it's probably not the detail to put him up on. <laughs> no. Out of all the details that he gets wrong. I mean, there's just there's just so many details. But your, her, her answer kind of just got lost in a thicket of uh, fact-checking. And you could fact-check Donald. And I'm sure mm. people are fact-checking. And it was kind of, she just kept talking about fact-checking. It was kind of like, what's she saying? But at some stage, she has to run for president and not, you know, try and make Donald Trump look like an idiot. You know, and like, it, it, that was, I mean, I, I, as I was watching, I was like, surely just, hold on a second now, he's just completely wrong there. You have to jump in there and correct him. But I mean, you could literally have spent the entire night. She could have just spent the entire night saying, well, that's wrong, that's wrong. That's, and after a while, I mean, that's the law of diminishing returns if ever there was. Mm. You know, it's like you just come across as, well, I, I, to, to American voters, maybe you come across as a smart aleck. To me, that's, you know, you're just basically making him look like an idiot. But look, making him look like an idiot has worked out very well for himself. So, yeah. I mean, I mean I, I, it's, it, it is. It's weird. I, I, to be honest, if you're standing on a stage with someone for, well, I would say at least 60 of the 90 minutes, maybe the whole thing. Uh, lying about you and yelling at you. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to retain your composure or even even to take part in any sort of a back and forth with the people who are asking you questions, like actual audience members. 
uh, I think it's pretty impossible to do that. It's because it's not it's not a real argument. It's like this kind of Kafka esque situation. You know, it's like just this tornado mm. of of bullshit. He was basically that if it's if if you can't argue with it because it's not as though you can make a, a telling point. It's not as though. <laughs> It's not as though you're gonna. He's not going to be put down with a you know a telling bon mot. Well, no. well, 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 yeah, but in the case of the emails and the allegations against Clinton, I mean, it's not all made up out of thin air, as a lot of other things are. You know, oh. those areas he just clearly doesn't want to visit in any great detail. Mm, yeah. She obviously decided, like as she said, "You go low, I stay high." You know, barring Michelle Obama's phrase. I don't know. So, in some cases, it's, I think it's a case of, well, this isn't getting down dirty into the details of all these things probably isn't good for Hillary either. Yeah, but it's like, there's this kind of hyperinflation of scandal. Like, uh, you're, you're in a, this is the kind of Weimar Republic of scandal. Uh, you know, any things which previously would have been a fatal, uh, you know, a, a kind of a hole below the waterline of any presidential campaign. There's just so many of them that each individual one is, has become devalued. Like there are people going around with wheelbarrows full of scandal that they can't get into. Like they can't even get the social media to print this stuff. It's just, <laughs> it's just worthless. It's, you know, when there, when there are so many, each individual one, it's just like, well, here's another one. You know, it's like he, he brags about, he, <laughs> come on. He brags about grabbing women by the pussy. This is on tape. And it's like, and yeah, his, and yeah, his uh, his and his retort is well, yeah, but I mean, ISIS are cutting people's heads off. So I mean, in a world where you know that's the bar. I mean, if 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 you're doing something not as bad as cutting off people's heads and sending the videotape around the world, then I mean, quite frankly, you know, shouldn't we get back to the issues here? Quite frankly, you See, know, if it, what does it get decided on? If it doesn't get decided uh, by, you know. Uh, by anything to do with arguments about policy. And it doesn't get decided, as it often does, by a, a scandal which brings down one of the candidates, mm. costs them all their credibility. Then what does it, what is it decided on? I mean, I suppose the, the big factor is probably just where, which way were you intending to vote anyway? Um, and this wouldn't have changed too many mi- minds on that score. Like, uh, tr- Trump very much did what he... Well, the things that it might... The things that that people sort of will remember then from the debate, given that like it's it's kind of like well there was this whole there was this whole bit at the beginning where where one of the candidates had to sort of you know didn't really succeed in, in fending off this um, thing about boasting about sexually assaulting uh, women. Um, on the other hand, did you see the way he delivered that line about sending Hillary Clinton to jail? Way well, really zinged her there. You know she she said oh it's it's uh, it's great that someone with your temperament. It's a good thing, actually, someone with your temperament isn't in charge of the you know, U.S. justice system. And he said, yeah, because you'd be in jail. And the crowd who aren't supposed to say anything all like, Ugh. Yeah, the crowd was really lively last night, which I think, which it weren't supposed to be. No. And I think that definitely helped Trump. The more I think about that first yeah. debate, it must have been so weird for him to put in what he might have thought was a zinger and hear nothing back. You know, no, no crowd, no adulation, nothing like, like that. Kind of, bu- you know, you can't be like a, um, a bullying heckler. If nobody's laughing, no, yeah, it's just it doesn't Stony work. Stony faces all around. But but when when you get people whooping and laughing like that, then you start to build momentum. You could see that he he had momentum, and it was kind of like this. He he didn't ever have to speak for as protracted a time. It felt like to me about any point. He didn't really have to. He somehow his his inability to concentrate on his even his own what he himself is saying wasn't exposed as badly in that one. And he had he had a couple of lines like that. He kept sort of uh, coming in with these 
um, mocking lines as she was trying to speak. And that shouldn't make any difference. I mean, anyone who's, anyone who's listening to it and judging it fairly is like, well, this guy's just talking total nonsense. And when it got down to the policy issues, it was the usual of what you would expect Hillary Clinton to go into a lot of detail about what her plans would involve and Trump just giving out about Obamacare and stuff like that. The tax, the tax is the one that he does seem to have quite a lot of knowledge of. Yeah, but I mean, what he said, he was asked the question like, what are you going to do to make sure that the richest Americans pay their fair share of tax? And he basically explained, I, he said, I know more about the tax system than anyone. And then explained how under his system, nobody would be paying as much. Hmm. He reckons that America is one of the highest tax systems in the world, which is not true. Um, and then he explained how he was going to make it much, yeah, a much lower tax uh, situation. Which, so effectively, the answer was, I'm going to do the, exactly the opposite of what you want me to do. That was basically what he said, what he presented as his answer. It wasn't like he was trying to sidestep. Mm. <laughs> he literally just said, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what you want. But I don't think he would have even realized that the answer he gave was actually the opposite of what the person was asking. I don't think he has that level of analytical kind of insight. Do you want to get a last word on this one? Yeah, you know, I think you can definitely say that it was riveting television. Um, and it was. Like, I, to be honest, it was... And it was extraordinary to watch. I mean, if I was an American, I would just be, like, appalled. But, I mean, it was enthralling television. I do actually think that not a lot of people's minds were changed by anything that he said last night. What it was was a 90-minute pitch for Trump television, which will be launching on your TV screens in January of 2017 after he's lost (laughs) this presidential debate. And that was... There were a lot of potential cable TV customers watching last night and I think that they will have liked what they've seen and uh, they'll they'll eat it up in uh, in January. Forget about Trump-Clinton for a second. The real debate last night took place around the Ireland-Moldova game and not for the first time it featured these two protagonists. We've gone ahead in lots of games and, and, and conceded. Is that something that you're worried about as, as a, a trait of ours now? No, I, 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 well, I'm not so sure that, that, that it is absolutely true. I mean, some of the sides that we played against you, you're talking about France there where we got in front in the game. We got in front in Italy and stayed on. You know, mm-hmm. we got in front of Georgia and stayed on. So I'm not, I'm not Serbia, so sure. No. It's Serbia away from home. Mm-hmm. You've just won tonight against Austria. Mm, not bad. No, I agree. It's not, not bad. bad. It's, not I mean, bad. Yeah. Not bad at all. Do you know what we did do? I think you keep forgetting. We actually fought back to to get an equaliser in that game when when uh, all seemed lost mm-hmm. from uh, and also the goal that they they took the lead with in Serbia in Belgrade. That you a very dubious penalty. But in the last yeah. two games, your players have yeah. said that you've given them a rollicking at halftime. It doesn't. It do, that's that's really immaterial. I have to do a job here. My job is pretty important to me. Players are very important. Players are great. Players have to respond to things that you say as well too, and they've responded. They responded for the last couple of years. Yeah, it's Martin O'Neill speaking to Tony O'Donoghue on Norte TV after the game yesterday. O'Neill. Mm. Well, that's a relation from quite early on in O'Neill's reign. The, the, there seems to have been these quite repeated tetchy interviews between the two. Stone Neal is waiting for the kind of, uh, you know, the, the testy question and is only too willing to give a fairly, uh, you know, a fairly intense answer to it. Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think that it's Tony Dunhu's fault. I think that Martin O'Neill would be the same with anybody who was asking him questions, a series of them in a row. Uh, Tony Dunhu has to do that after every match. Uh, and Martin O'Neill knows that a lot of people will see that interview. That's the one that's going out on TV, live or as live. Um, 
So he obviously feels the need to he 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 doesn't like when he's when people ask him questions. Um, he certainly doesn't like. You mean, anything. Ne- you, you mean negative questions? Like that was that was only yeah, the second he, question he, of the interview there by yeah. uh, by Tony, and it was in fairness to O'Neill in this case, it was a match that they'd won, and he might have felt well. These are going to be reasonably positive questions, and the second one is about how we always throw away leads. Yeah, um, which which I think is a is a reasonable question. Um, I mean, you can argue about the phrasing of it. Um, I do. I mean, I think O'Neill does see negativity. He he's got a good detector for it. <laughs> you know, what, you know what I mean. Uh, I, I mean, if you see him doing that on TV, you know, you can see. You'd see similar things, I think, if any, if you know, any journalist in any situation is asking O'Neill a series of questions, particularly if it's about a performance that wasn't that good, you'll see that kind of response. That's just the way that he responds. Um, I wonder what's going on though with the team because there was a bit, you know, with James McLean as well, where he's talking about the uh, the media. The yeah, that was, that was in a Sky interview. He had a, had a pop at the media. Yeah, uh, so I do wonder to what extent this has become a. Um, this has become a kind of a, almost motivational thing in the Irish team. Oh, like a siege mentality? Maybe a little bit. I mean, you can hear O'Neill saying the players have to respond to you as well. And you, you say that in that clip, you know. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know which, what, you know, what particular, are they talking basically about Eamon Dunphy sagging them off on TV? Is that where, is that what they're most annoyed about? Uh, I, I must say, when I look at the when I look at the coverage of the team in general, I don't consider. I don't think it's unfair. I don't think that it's overly negative. I think there's loads of almost worshipful stuff, you know, about these uh, this sort of exciting team and the great job that everybody's doing. There's, there's, I'd say on balance, there's a lot more positive stuff than than negative. We've loads more reaction to Ireland. Georgia, I was about to say. Well, we did end up talking about Ireland Georgia again quite a lot. Cause you, you'll get to that. Listen to the football podcast. There's lots of good stuff there with Richie. David Fitzgerald is back in the job pretty quick too as manager of the Wexford Herders, as predicted by Owen Kelly on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago. We're going to talk to Matthew Clerken about that later. But Simon, your main takeaway from the weekend's interprovincial rugby? I think it was actually more the Connacht Ulster game than Leinster Munster. Even though there was bigger crowd, bigger atmosphere at it, maybe bigger history. But Connacht... Things could have gone really badly, I think, this year. They could have been, you know, 8th, ninth, 10th place team again if they'd gone a couple more games, just because of their history as well. But the performance, the way they did it, the fact that it was Ulster who they've struggled against uh, more than any other team, I think, in the Pro 12, the, the way the fans reacted, um, the fact that they dealt with so many injuries, they showed a bit more depth there. I think what Connacht did showed more than what Munster or Leinster or Ulster did over the weekend in terms of how they'll go for the rest of the season. All right, well, we're going to get Damien Varley on in a couple of minutes' time. Former Munster hooker, of course, Jerry Thorny is with us in studio. Jerry, how are things? Good, thank you. And you? Uh, pretty good, yeah. It's kind of kind of exciting now. Mm. Uh, I think we were remarking last week that it takes a few weeks for everyone to fully connect with the rugby season, but we're there now anyway, and mm. we will come back. Simon's been impressed with Connors, so we'll get back to that. Uh, what about Leinster? Were, were there the, the, the sure signs yet that Leinster are moving up a gear or two this season? Yeah, I think so, uh, on average. They're certainly in a far better place than they were this time tw- 12 months ago when they were going into the first round against Wasps, having had 21 players the World Cup. As Leo Cullen joked, after some players even know the calls now going into the first round of Europe, which is a nice change from a year ago. Um, I think the the best thing, they've got loads of resource in the back row. You could have Sean O'Brien and Josh Van de Fleer coming back into the equation this week. Dominic Ryan doesn't get a look in, and you think of the four players they had in that area at, at the weekend. I think the biggest thing for them is the form of Johnny Sexton. Mm. All, by all accounts, 
he's in a much better headspace than he was last season. Um, his body's in good nick. He started the game the season really well with three good performances back to back now to go into Europe. And then the big thing I think was Henshaw making such a really impressive debut at twelve. Very muscular, very physical, big tackles, choke tackles, strong carries, and a few little deft touches on the ball as well. A lovely little grubber through that led to a try, and I think that and Gary Ringrose was just running very freely outside him, and it looks has a, a very futuristic look to it, both in blue and in green. I thought Sexton Henshaw um, and Ringrose was a real plus for them, and they just have a lot of just a lot of good players. They still have the best squad of players of any Irish provincial team. That's why they are bulk suppliers to Ireland. And they have the most winnable of the four opening round fixtures against Castro. The flip side of that coin is they have to be Castro at home or else they're goosed. I don't know what you thought, Jerry, but I don't think Leinster were that incredible no. at the weekend. But you felt like they were definitely going in the right direction and there was huge potential. Particularly that midfield is brand new. Mm. Ringrose is still relatively, you know, a relative newcomer. And that, if that's their baseline, that's pretty good if they start going up for, upwards from there. Completely, utterly. And they've got... They've got good uh, inside them as well. Luke McGrath looks as if he's really responded to the arrival of Jemison Gibson-Park, who looks like a serious acquisition. Very live-wire scrum half, good support player, gets around the pitch like a Kiwi scrum half. And then, as you said, those three there. Sexton has the whole repertoire still of any out-half around. For me, he's still the best out-half in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, he's got a very clever kicking game out of hand. He's got a very strong running game, very good distribution, reads the game well. So he's calling the shots very well, as he does. Henshaw adds some real ballast, real go forward, which you need there at 12. And Ringrose, I don't know if he's necessarily going to start against the All Blacks in Chicago. I doubt he will, to be honest, but I think he might start against Canada. And at some point in the future, it could well be the 10, 12, 13 for Ireland. Ringrose gives a real, something different to the other two. He's very elusive. He's got a good swerve. He's quick. He's strong. And he's got good feet. And he gives a real potency in that number 13 channel. And as a benchmark for their first outing together, it was extraordinarily impressive, particularly Henshaw, I thought, given it was his first game since May, his first game for Leinster. He got through 80 minutes and he grew more and more influential as the match went on. And he, he clearly revels playing outside Sexton. You know, he's won the majority of his 22 caps playing outside Johnny. They have a good understanding. It was one of the main reasons, I say, that he went to Leinster in the first place and now finally he's on the pitch. And again, by all accounts, he's been a very influential figure, a very vociferous figure um, given a real energy in training Henshaw well. has been yeah because he yeah. wouldn't be noted for that no, necessarily no so he looks like he, it might be that he will de- revel in these in these new in, in circumstances any, very often a player ma- makes a move in any sport and it can be very beneficial for us gives him a fresh energy um, he would have had his reservation I'm sure when he left Connacht it would, it would have been a certain poignancy in the leaving um, he's quite emotional I remember the day after in the homecoming saying you never know I might be back that was the strongest indication he gave that he might have had a little bit of regret about the move. I'd say he must have had some doubts. You know, the, his home province, the province his uncle and his father played for and so forth. But yeah, he seems to have been gone up another level. He is now entering his mid-twenties. He does have 22 caps under his belt. He's not the callow youth that broke into the Irish or the Connacht team a few years back. He's um, a much more seasoned player now. Been working a few years with Joe Schmidt. And uh, yeah, I think he's going to look, he looks like a really serious acquisition for them. All right, Damien Farley, as I said, has been listening to this. Damien, are you a little bit in danger of maybe bigging Leinster up too much after the win at the weekend? No, I thought they were very impressive. Um, I agree with Jerry. I think Sexton is the point of difference for the Leinster team. The way he manages the game, the way he directs everyone outside him, in front of him, uh, it's, I mean, he's world class. And I suppose. I mean, it's disappointing for me to say, but Munster showed no sign of threatening um, that line. Um, every time they got into their 22, they spilt a ball. Their ball handling skills were nowhere near um, acceptable enough at that level. 
Um, I suppose they had a poor, they had a great win last week against poor opposition, which all, always gives you almost false confidence going into a game against Leinster. And it looked like they never got off the blocks. There were some glimpses of great play from them, um, but they kind of looked a bit tired against a very energised um, Leinster team directed extremely well by Sexton. Yeah, just on those basic mistakes you're talking about there, particularly the spilling the ball, because early on they seem to be playing quite a lot of rugby in one of those bits where they go to the coaches on, on TV coverage. Jerry Flannery seemed happy enough that they were trying to play some rugby, but you know, even early on in the game he was bemoaning the fact that they just couldn't handle it. Is there any specific reason why that would happen? Because you're on hiding to nothing if, if you're going to make those sort of mistakes. Yeah, I don't know really why it would have happened. Uh, to me, they looked slightly tired. Um, and I suppose that kind of maybe lack of concentration, I don't know whether it was nerves or what, they showed areas, they, they broke the line, they put Leinster under pressure, but they allowed Leinster in the game uh, simply by not holding the ball on the ground. Now, for me, that's just a lack of concentration on your job. And, you know, it, it's a very simple mistake that should, shouldn't happen once, let alone the number of times that it did happen. Um, that coupled with knock-ons, I mean, you just cannot do that at any level, let alone um, against Leinster. Damien, the vibe's been quite positive coming from Munster with the acquisition of Rassi Erasmus, with Tyler Blindell finally, it seems, putting the injuries behind him. And, you know, Murray and Zebon, the likes of these guys, is still in form as they have been for a couple of years. But how much of a knockback is that? How much of a reality check was this weekend? I think confidence is high, uh, and rightly so. I mean, Munster have shown no signs to date of what they've shown at the weekend. But, I mean, let's not forget... In the height of Munster's um, victories, this used to always happen. Um, the, the week before a European game, you'd come into the game um, fairly confident, and it's, it's always the Leinster fixture, and you'd lose it. And it was almost like it was, it was a kick um, and a clip to say, cop on, what are we doing? Are, are we patting ourselves too much in the back? Um, so, I mean, that happened in the greatness of the Munster years, let alone happening now. I think there is a lot of positivity, and rightly so, with what, what, what Razzie has doing. It's great to see Tyler um, you know, leading and injury-free. I suppose, again, going back to the out-half position, I mean, you're up against someone of Johnny Sexton's class, and, and you know, I suppose it was kind of schooled a little bit. And you can do nothing but learn from those experiences, and I think it'll, it'll stand to Tyler because he hasn't that much rugby under his belt in the last two years. So coming up against someone like Sexton and seeing how he can orchestrate everything uh, is a great uh, lesson going into the next two weeks. Blaindell's performances this season have been a real boost, though, haven't they, Damien, for Munster, in the sense that he is now finally injury-free. He takes the ball to the game line very cleverly. He times his offloads and his passes very well. He brings others into the game. The only thing I would say about him is I, the stats after it on scrum.com said he get credited him with one kick out of hand in 80 minutes. And certainly Conor Murray takes on an awful lot of responsibility for Munster's kicking game. And I thought Leinster done their homework, as other teams will do, as for sure Racing Metro with Ron Nogara as part of their think tank will do, that when Conor Murray puts up those boxes, they flooded the channels very well and they ensured that the Leinster player under the ball was oftentimes... Um, been unchallenged when he went up to claim the ball and I think there's a, there's a little bit of predictability about Munster in that respect and I think other teams you feel that to go into Europe and get out of such a tough pool they're going to have to bring a little bit more and as long as Francis Saeli is injured that deprives them of some real ballast in midfield you know I thought hands down 10, 12, 13 just won the contact zone for Leinster and was a big part in their, in their win at the weekend 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, Tyler has shown great kind of confidence. And he's a different style player as what we were used to for the last mm. two seasons. He is more of an attacking player. You're right, he didn't kick that much. And I think when we did kick between the halfbacks, it was very loose. And Leinster had us very well. Uh, they, they were very well prepared to deal with us. Um, I suppose the other thing that we can't take away is the energy that Leinster brought from yes. a defensive point of yeah. view. And, and we always talk about how defence wins games and um, the speed, the structure that they brought to it. Uh, it just crippled Munster and crippled any sort of attack plan that they tried. And then when you reverse the roles, uh, Munster were a bit static. They were going off in ones and twos. And on a few occasions, we had shooters out of the line uh, missing their man. And, I mean, that's unforgivable. Uh, and we, it's always said if you're going to come out of the line you, got, you have to take man and ball because you're exposing the whole uh, defensive structure and that happened us a couple of times and I think we were lucky that we weren't um, down another few tries and, and, and I think we're, we can be grateful to a few you know, small uh, mistakes like Ringrose knocking it on uh, the referee getting in the way those little things they, they just kind of went in our favour Jerry Connacht put in a, a welcome for, well I, I suppose it was a a bit of a taster over the week before I was actually in Galway for the win against Edinburgh and I noticed the confidence which I thought would have been knocked by that mm. stage losing the first few games of the season and the skills coach on the way and all this kind of stuff that's going on hadn't affected and they were still running the, the ball almost too much you would say a lot of people would say but clearly that's what Pat Lamb believes in they did it again against Ulster and oh, they mixed it up a little bit but got their rewards for it pretty impressive yeah in the first half they had 50-50 possession but took their tries brilliantly they were, there was a real sharpness about their running game in the second half um into the wind they had 78%, 72% possession they just refused to kick the ball they kept playing and their exit strategy cost them went a long way towards cost them the 14 points at the start of the second half which brought it back to 22 yeah. all now a team down near the foot of the table against a team that's unbeaten on top of the table having conceded a double whammy like that at 22 all most people on the ground probably would have thought right Connacht have lost this and certainly times past they would have lost it but clearly that win over Edinburgh was a major turning point for them in terms of that belief in their own systems their own structures you think that such stalwarts of this team like Tom McCartney, Kieran Marmion, Matt Healy were all out and the people that stepped in, um, Dave Heffernan, that astonishing break in the first three minutes. You don't normally see clean line breaks from hookers in the first three minutes of a match, of a derby, when the, so much intensity. I thought in that first 20 minutes, for example, at the Aviva, Lens were almost better off not having the ball. Sometimes you are when energy's at its highest. There's just no space in a rugby pitch. Kind of created space brilliantly. Uh, their handling skills, they trust them from 1 to 15 across the board. And at 22 all, they just retreated back into their systems and their structures and they just retained the ball and refused to kick the ball and went on with their own normal exit strategies. It helped that Paddy Jackson missed a crucial kick to touch along the line at 22-all. But I just thought that was a huge statement about where Connacht are at as, a, as an organisation, as a squad, that they have the strength and depth, no matter who comes in, they trust in them. And it's like they got, they've gone back to where they finished off last season. I thought it was an invaluable win for them. I think it gives them a real chance against her. That was in the sports ground on Saturday night. It throbbed just like last season. The atmosphere was electric. They've now had their first ever win over Ulster um, under the Pat Lamb and their first ever bonus point win over Ulster. They've been a real bogey side for them going into playing a home Saturday night match against Toulouse. It gives them a real opportunity to do something in Europe this season. And I think also, to be honest, it was better for the league that they won. No disrespect to Ulster. But the league benefited from Connacht winning it in the manner they won it last season. They were the most entertaining team as well as the best team by the end. And we don't want them to go away. It's mm. good for Irish rugby. It's good for the Pro 12 that they're now back with 10 points from two games and looking up the table instead of be back behind them. Yeah, and the fear... Yeah, I, I think the fact on, Damien, yeah. 
they're such a young side to have that strength and depth um, and to be able to cope with the criticism that they've come under um, at the start of the season. And I think it happens with most champions. You, you get overconfidence and exuberant. But I mean, the way that they held themselves, and I think a huge amount of credit has to go to Pat Lamb and the way he manages the guys and the confidence that he instills in them and he backs them. Uh, the win against Edinburgh was huge, but I think we none of us would have given that victory uh, to Connacht at the weekend. We we all would have backed Ulster going into it. But the manner in which they did it, you can just see the belief in these young guys, which is incredible. I, I agree with Jerry there. The the the, the knock on effect to Irish rugby that that gives for such a young squad is incredible. Damien, I don't know if you're the same as me, but I genuinely feared after the first few games of the season that they might just disappear again. I, did you think that same way? I didn't at the start of the season, but then two games into it, and, and there's still kind of no, no sign of of how they played last season, and they looked very de- de- depleted. Um, and watching them against the Ospreys um, was, you know, borderline painful. But again, the following week against Edinburgh, it was chalk and cheese, and it was incredible. I was on the sideline for that game, and you could just see this exactly where they finished last season. And it's like they just woke up after the hangover. Uh, you know, they started extremely well, and it just built. And then to back it up against with against that with that victory against Ulster, uh, you know, it, it it starts that excitement for Connacht again, and what they could potentially deliver next week. Just a note of caution, that though, Jerry. Our European defence is going to be a little more savvy than. The, the Guinness Pro 12 defences have been over last year so I mean they, they'll know what's coming and maybe they'll think well you, know, you keep the ball in hand all you want you're not going to break us down that way In actual fact I would say that all teams like Ulster the Scarlets Edinburgh and Ospreys would know Connacht even better than the French sides do and I don't think the French sides would be that bothered in doing their homework to anything like the same level I think it was very evident the way that they've, the opposing teams have now tried to use umbrella defences outside in to cut them off the pass and it's worked you know the Scarlets it worked them a lot against Connacht um, very often it worked with Jared Payne and Tommy Bowe shooting up in the outside flanks and nailing their man, man and ball, and cut them off. And yet the ball would go back, they'd retrieve it, they'd regroup to Tierna Halloran, Nia, Dilokin a couple of times, and they'd start again. Yeah. And it's, it was just classic kind of Connacht rugby. It was flawed, but they would go through 14 phases and end up, even despite going yeah. back a few times, still scoring it, a it's, try. It's amazing about the times they, they, they yeah. throw misplaced passes yeah. that bounce up and they just keep going, as though that hasn't happened. <laughs> yes. It's kind of strange. That you happens in New Zealand a lot, too. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know very it's a positive like attitude. It's All Blacks light. It's yeah. very like watching the All Blacks. And there's really so is. many people sweeping up in support that the chances are if it goes behind the guy who's meant mm-hmm. to catch it, there's a, there's a fullback or a scrum yeah. half sweeping around. Yeah, and they also time that pass out the back to go around the outside for the match winning try so so well as well um, yeah they've got their mojo back teams can, might know what's coming at them and they might have employ effective defence against them but I think they're becoming more used to dealing with this and then you want to understand they, they lost AJ McGinty and Ali Muldowney and Robbie Henshaw at the end of the season now okay none of those three were around early last season either Muldowney was injured Jay Keane was injured and AJ McGinty hadn't joined yet but Jack Carty's growing into the number 10 role, clearly. Ulton Delan is growing into that quasi-first receiver, Ali Muldowney role. Keen Keller has made the decision to move from Leinster and has been totally vindicated already. Three tries in the last two games, again, more rugby at an elite level of sport than he ever would have done had he stayed in Leinster. And then you see a young player like Dave Heffernan, all these young players coming through their academy who can just slot in for a Tom McCartney. Dave Heffernan is possibly even more dynamic carrier. He doesn't have anything like McCartney's experience. The one caveat in all of this is they're already looking at, they're down to the bare bones in a few positions. And this month was always going to be 
if you like, a litmus test for them because they're just not used to competing at the elite level of the Pro 12 and in the Champions Cup and this is going to test them this month like no other. Okay, looking forward to the European weekend. Listen, Jerry, Damien, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, thank Thank you. Thank you very much. In the final round in the game. And Just one more point to make about the rugby, Simon, and that is that uh, we should be afraid, very afraid, of the two matches we have going up against New Zealand. I was watching them at the weekend, put 57 points on South Africa. Yeah. They've won 17 in a row now, is it? Yeah. That, that my, the only saving grace, I was looking at it going, oh no, they're going to play us looking for the world, to beat the world record. Mm. And they've matched it now. Thankfully, there's still one game to go against Australia before then. So they'll have the record by then and might ease off against us in Chicago. Yeah, they'll finally... Because I think for them, it's like Kilkenny, you know, the things that become targets for them are abnormal. It becomes all-time records. It becomes, you know, winning a couple of World Cups in a row, whatever it is, as opposed to most teams just trying to get a bit of a run together, a bit of momentum. Australia, actually, are the kind of team that might just do it against them. They're probably the only team in the world that might do it. But uh, every other rugby game that's played at club or international level seems a little bit less relevant because of the way they're playing, because it feels like a different sport. I mean, this is going... This is going back years and years that they're doing this, but the fact that they're stretching away is what makes it so unnerving. Their attitude towards the end of the game yesterday was hilarious. It was as though remember when we nearly beat them, and they, there, we had that sense of doom when they started going through the phases at the end because they just looked like a team who weren't going to make a mistake and who were hell bent on getting a try, which is totally understandable because they were about to lose the game and lose the unbeaten record they had that season. But they were like that against South Africa. The last had a sweeping move near the end, having already scored seven tries or whatever it was. Was it eight they ended up with nine? Anyway, they'd already scored a bunch of tries and they were still going at it like they needed to score this, this try or they're going to lose to South Africa, you know? They'd already put up 50 points. It wasn't even like there was any particular landmark to reach. They just wanted to score another try to stuff it down South Africa and then talk really respectfully afterwards about how tight a test match it was, you know, the usual kind of nonsense. I, their, their ruthlessness is just uh, incredible, you know, and that's, I guess, something that Kilkenny probably to compare them to an Irish sporting team would have and a lot of the great great teams have. Just and it's the players... The, the need to actually score that last try when there is no need. Yeah, and the players that they've brought through to replace Carter, McCaw and all the other legends that have gone. Bowden Barrett's arguably a better player than Dan Carter already. He's faster. He's better for the style of game they're playing at the moment. He, you know, he offloads. He, he scores his own tries. His kicking game isn't quite as good, but almost everything else he does is better than Dan Carter. That's a pretty scary thing to say. The Irish Times second captain's football podcast is out now. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But I'm not know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Twelfth Field, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you're showing me, man? 
The King of Kizinow. Oh, and that's what they're calling him, James McLean. Uh, after his two-goal salvo. Brace, uh, if you will. It was a brace. Uh, and he and that was the end of Moldova's challenge to Ireland. So we're on the top of Group D, uh, which is an exciting place to be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Joint well, top. Joint top. Joint, well, I mean, seven Second. points. You know? yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing it on away goals. <laughs> so we're ahead of Fair Serbia. Enough. Fair enough. No, I, listen, I, I, the flimsiest of arguments to put us on top of that group is fine by me. We're yeah. ahead of Serbia on away goals. So uh, we talked to Richie about that and some other things. All right, Malky Clerkin is in to talk about one of our favourite subjects, Malky. David Fitzgerald? Always, yeah. Yeah, it was already a few weeks. It seems very recently that we were talking about his next step after yeah. leaving Clare, and he's already made it. He, the he, year he, out option was uh, a non-runner from the start. Did he Did he take a week out? Did he take a yeah. fortnight? Hmm. Yeah, I think I read, did I read somewhere yesterday that this is now 10 consecutive seasons then that he's involved in inter-county management yeah. from uh, from when he took over Waterford mm. in, 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 what, early 2008 or whatever. So Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, not at all surprised. No, um, no, I'm not. I guess I, I remember when we were talked about it here, whatever it was, a fortnight ago or mm-hmm. so. Uh, it was still a wee bit up in the air whether that job was actually available. I know the wind looked to have started blowing against Liam Dunn down mm-hmm. there, um, and it seems seems uh, obviously that that's what happened in the end. Um, and uh, you know, uh, on paper, Davy looked. Like he's a great coup for them mm. to a certain extent, you know, an All Ireland winning manager, obviously somebody who takes the game very seriously and has been involved, as we said, for ten years. Um, it's I don't know that, you know, you need to take a wee bit of time for it to see what sort of a fit it is. You know, um, sometimes you look at at Wexford hurling down the years, and I don't know if if you know, it it looks like a kind of a what we see Davy as a kind of a dictatorial, um, technical uh, coach coming down and and telling them that they have to put their whole lives into this. Um, I don't know if it just all that well chimes with your idea of Wexford Hurl. Why? What is your idea? I don't know. There, there's something. There, yeah, and, and maybe and maybe this is sort of going into caricature or stereotype. You know, there's there's always something about Wexford Hurling that you kind of look at them and go, they're a wee bit sort of happy-go-lucky, or they're you know they're um, everybody's delighted when Wexford win a big game. You know, everyone countrywide is delighted. You know, um, because you know they bring fans and they bring supporters, and no matter how bad the beatings are, morale still keeps relatively high. You know, and um, it's always you know it's always a great place to go for a game. You know, any time I've been down to Wexford Park, it's, it seems to be kind of midsummer and there's kind of hazy sky and all that sort of stuff and people are selling strawberries outside and all that sort of carry on and it's all you know it's all you know that none of that matters in the slightest um, and I presume I don't even presume I'm, I, I, to make it clear I'm not saying that this is bad for them or anything like that it just it seemed a wee bit incongruous on paper but um, you know they they wanted a change and he's definitely a change you know Liam Dunn did a, did a fine, fine job there, you know, and I think that might get lost a little bit. He did a really good job. Um, you know, they're in the All-Iron quarterfinal two of the last three years. You know, Cork can't say that. Dublin, Limerick, all these, you know, 
teams that would you would see as better than them. Um, they they have brought through three Leinster under twenty one winning teams in a row, and even at that, you know, Liam Dunn found himself at the start of this year with a completely decimated squad through injuries and still managed, you know, a win over Cork, their first one in however many years. So he's done a, a very good job down there. Um, and Davey will be different. He'll be different. Yeah, and we'll get on to Liam Dunn in a second as well. But I'll, just to get back to that that idea of Wexford, mm. uh, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's what, that's what people think about Wexford, mm. that caricature, that if if I were to pick a manager... That would be suited to Wexford. I would see more of a sort of a wrangler than a, yeah. you know, than, than a guy than a micromanager exactly. like Davy. You know, yeah. like a, a, a sort of a Brendan Rodgers type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like a, a guy who can a, a vibes man. A bit as, of that, yeah, yeah as yeah. opposed to. Uh, uh, the sort of fellow who will ask his players to train five times in Christmas week. Like, uh, is that not exactly what they need, though? Is this the point oh, yeah, that no. you, you, you need somebody with a totally different kind of perspective to how things have been done before and maybe get them jolted out of this happy-go-lucky attitude that yeah. we seem to think they have? Yeah, yeah, and uh, like that's it, you know? But, but you know, if, if you're kind of going against the, the prevailing nature... And I mean, you know, prevailing nature of a county, like what the hell are we talking about? But hmm. but what, what I would say is that there is a culture that's grown up over 30, 20 or 30 years in Wexford Hurling where that's the spirit in which they they approach Hurling. So he has to change well, that. Yeah, and I, I mean, in a way, Liam Griffin should always be the Wexford manager, you know, yeah. that kind of way, like <laughs> that, that it should all be built on, on spirit and, you know, speeches and the river dance of sport and Braveheart and all that sort of stuff. Um, and this will be different, you know. Um, it's going to be... You know, he's bringing um, um, the manager of the under-21 teams with him. Um, he, like, there's going to be an awful lot of travel involved for him. Like, I was thinking about it today. Is there, are there two hurling counties further apart <laughs> than Clare and Wexford? Mm. Like, it's, you know... If you take Antrim out of the equation, that's what you're doing. Yeah, like, yeah. you're talking, you're talking a three-and-a-half-hour uh, one-way trip, you know... Going to be an awful lot of that involved in it, which I, I guess won't help his mood <laughs> at times. Um, I don't, don't know would he be. A, he, he'll not be any less cranky anyway. Um, it's it's uh, a sort of it's a step into the unknown for both of them. Um, you have to wonder uh, from his point of view what's in it for him to a certain extent. You know, Wexford are a fair bit down the pecking order. Like I know I was talking about what, what Liam Dunn did with them, but. You know they're the fourth county in Leinster, and you Even wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't back them to beat any of the any of the big Munster counties really yeah. at any stage. You know, and so so that's a he's gone a fair bit down the food chain there to to take on a job, which uh, you know you kind of say all credit to him for it. Yeah, even the under twenty one successes that they've had. I mean, they didn't go on. They won three Leinsters. It's true, but. You know they didn't go push on a win in All Ireland, like you no, know, and even, sure even one of them was even one of them lost to Antrim, you know, yeah, like, like and and were badly, you know, that that really took the good out of it, yeah, to, to a yeah. certain extent. You and know? you know, and you say you're looking at that and saying, well, you know, winning in an All Ireland under twenty one is absolutely no guarantee of anything, <laughs> you know. So even the 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 upside, which is right, these players there, there's a group of players there who shouldn't fear Kilkenny have have beaten Kilkenny at under twenty one level in two of those three Leinster mm-hmm. finals. Um you know, even the upside isn't that up really. 
No, the, the only upside is that they, they go into adulthood not having taken Haydn's off Kilkenny all the way up. Mm. You know, for, for what that's worth. You know, it hasn't proven to be worth anything yet. But um, that that has always... It was always at those games that you were kind of going, well, you're nearly seeing uh, Wexford people going, well, we got them there. We got we we got them into adulthood without uh, the, having to carry this scar yeah, that yeah, everybody yeah. else carries with them. So, but look, uh, uh, in saying that, there is raw talent there. He definitely has players to to build a team around. Um, but it's going to take a while. You know, mm. I wouldn't be wouldn't be waiting on it next year. Yeah, and. Uh, the one thing I noticed actually at the the quarterfinal this year was just the, there are a lot of easy fixes with with Wexford. There are a lot of areas where you can make mm. an immediate difference, and like the strength and conditioning of Wexford compared to every other team in the hurling championship this year that I saw live, <laughs> like unbelievable. Mm. Uh, like I could I couldn't get over. I was sitting quite close to the the dugout for the Waterford Wexford game, and I couldn't believe the undersized yeah. uh, nature of the Wexford substitutes uh, warming up in front of me looked like a minor team but that exactly went back to the fact that he had so many injuries like he, I think he had, he had about a dozen mm. of his first choice panel got injured through the year so by by the time they reached the summer they had you know they had intermediates they had under 21s they had guys not long out of minor the, who have just haven't done the five years of, of S&C that you need at that level like they can't all be Lee Chin, they, they, you know. Yeah. If, I was going to mention Lee Chin, yeah. yeah. They're not, like, you know, some of the starting boys the are big enough. The proves the rule, yeah. <laughs> the, I think their chairman was on RT over the weekend talking about top six. That he wants to be, they, they want to get yeah. cemented as a top six county. So it's not as though he's laying it out publicly that they want to win in All-Ireland or something know, like this. Yeah. So, which, you know, sometimes you get carried away when you get a big name manager like that and maybe start thinking that I way. Know. Look, they want to get to a Leinster final. That's that's where their, their starting point is going to have to be. And, you know, to get to a Leinster final, they have... They'll have to get past one or two of of Dublin, Galway and Kilkenny. We've talked a bit about Liam Dunn and you reckon he did a pretty good job overall. Has he been shafted a little bit here in that it's a situation where he had to apply again? Apparently, Davey, I'm not saying Dave Fitzgerald shafted him and by all accounts, Davey Fitz didn't start talking and he said that he wanted assurances that Dunn wasn't a live contender mm. for the job. I actually misread that when I first read that. I thought that he wanted to, he was only going to take it if Dunn didn't want it, right. which is a different thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. he, he was like, look, are you, are you, if you're not taking Dunn back, then I'll start talking to you. And they said, mm. no. It just seems a little bit tri- of a tricky situation where a manager still wants a job, applies for it again, and, uh, and lose, I guess that's top level sport, he loses out. It's just, it's only really, I guess, in the GA where you apply for jobs yeah. that you already have. Yeah, there's <laughs> a bit of that, yeah. Like, Liam Dunn, uh, has all like that was five years he was doing that job, mm. you know, and he 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 was he was in an, an uneasy seat for most of that time. Lee Liam is a fairly combative guy, you know, like he's he's he sort of fights the world a bit. I have a lot of time for him, and and I've interviewed him a few times, and and I find him a fascinating guy. Like he's, you know, like the day the day after he got the Wexford job, he lost his actual job. And was out of work for eighteen months almost, right. you know. And I remember talking to him, and like, you know, he was he was talking about having to go into, you know, his into team meetings with his new team, and um, you know, thinking these guys don't respect me. I don't have a job. Like I'm talking to I'm talking to guys who are in college doing pharmacy and accountancy and all this sort of stuff, uh, who are going to go on to big careers, and I'm here scrabbling around for for a gig, mm. and I'm old enough to be their father you know so Liam 
he had a, he had a fight an awful lot of battles through that time and his personality and Wexford is a small place like all counties are small places and the GA and all counties make the place smaller again uh, would have fallen out with plenty of guys over the years would have he would certainly have felt that there was a, a good strain of the county you know again again um, you know there was there was a story back at the start of around Aprilish where uh, he went, went away on, for a couple went of days. Away, went away on holiday for a couple of days and left somebody to take, uh, sessions take, or a, take a session or whatever. And like the, the, like war in the county over it and him having to you know justify himself when he came back. And I must say, I I had a feeling that he would want to stay on because he is a like he he really loves it. Like he's just one of these guys. You know, he played on the '96 team. It gave him hurling and Wexford hurling gave him everything that was ever really good about his life. You know, he really loved it and loves it and loves being involved in it and loves improving those players, like, loved taking on th- those under-21 players and and trying to trying to make senior guys out of them. Um, I guess he was, I, I, I'd say he was probably shafted to a degree, and I, but it it was a shafting that everybody could see was coming, you know, and and I think... I think I think when you get to five years in the GAA, you'd want to have two All Irelands one <laughs> in really, those well, five years. Yeah, Mickey Herter or Brian Cody. Well, yeah, or you'd certainly want to have a provincial title one, or you'd want to have a league title one, and all that sort of stuff. There, the it it was always a struggle. Uh, and look, that's it may well still be a struggle. There's every chance that it still will be a struggle, and that in two to three years. We'll be sitting here, and Davy will have, you know, moved heaven and earth, and got huge backing from the county board, and you know, we'll be talking about how he really raised standards and all that sort of stuff. And it might still not be enough, you know. There's everybody else goes to training two nights a week as well, you know, and it's um, they are, they are coming from a low base, and it's it's a a big gig ahead of them. Um, but yeah, I yeah, Liam was probably treated shabbily enough down there. Okay, we'll leave it on that uh, sour enough note. Listen, Malky, great, thanks a minute. All right, cheers. Andrew, that's the question that's going to be asked, answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. Ooh. If I do apologise, I saw you straining at the leash. Ah, well, listen, so that's, that how Simon, that's, uh, that's how Simon operates. I mean, yeah, we were talking New Zealand earlier on. I know you wanted to say something, and Simon just kept giving me the, you know, yeah. the kind of cut his mic look. Simon reminds me a lot of um, uh, an article I read about Donald Trump, actually, in New York. New yeah, York he reminds magazine. me a lot about just Donald. Um, don't even joke about that. They were so. talking about uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, a pre-first debate preview in New York Magazine. So obviously they spoke to Jane Goodall, that woman who lived with the uh, chimpanzees for uh, a <laughs> large number of years. And um, in many, Jane Goodall sp- uh, says, in many ways the performances of Donald Trump remind me of male chimpanzees and their dominance rituals. In order to impress rivals, males seeking to rise in the dominance hierarchy perform sp- spectacular displays, stamping, slapping the ground, dragging branches, throwing rocks. The more vigorous and imaginative the display, the faster the individual is likely to rise in the hierarchy and the longer he is likely to maintain that position. Now, 
I'm sorry, but th- does that not remind you of Simon's performance on this podcast a little earlier? Don't you open your mouth about the best! <laughs> so, yeah, I was, uh, I was hoping to talk about um, the hacker. Oh, yeah. Because I was cleaning the house on Saturday. It's a ritual in my house. I like to hoover on Saturday, Saturday afternoon. That's my time to hoover. Okay. And um, I used to love the hacker, like everyone else used to love the hacker. But I was about to move into the kitchen. And it was, it's, a, it's a small job. So I thought, I'll get this done, but oh, the game's about to start. And then the hacker was on. I was like, literally, I will have finished my hoovering job by the time the hacker is over. That's how little interest I have in watching the hacker. And it just struck me that in, whenever it is, nine months' time, we're going to have the lines facing up against the hacker. Mm. And that might be the greatest meeting of bullshit in world sport. The ha- the, re- remember the Brian Driscoll picking up some piece of grass you know remember that nonsense yeah and they sent what was it Dwayne Peel up first because he was the youngest oh, he had to accept God. the challenge and then the, that was a the, yeah that was a Clive Woodwardism I think yeah honestly that it sent a chill down my spine just thinking about that that's all I just wanted to get that off your chest about that well I, I mean I'm sorry <laughs> does, is, is, is any, does anyone still, actually what really annoyed me was the Sky Sports commentators talking about what an amazing spectacle it was like this is something that I'm sorry, we've all seen this a million times. It's pointless. It's ridiculous. It's, there's no reason for you to hand over... Basically, why, are we, why is the game not on? Why, why are we waiting to watch this? It's ridiculous and pointless. This is brilliant. It's a kind of bonus grind your gears edition. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Owen. Uh, that's just... It's something I wanted to get off my chest, but of course... Yeah, uh, old, old uh, silverback gorilla there. Old silverback over there. Wouldn't, <laughs> let, me, uh, wouldn't let me say it earlier. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Kieran. Thanks for listening. Cheers for taking the time. We'll chat to you soon. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, Headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.